Hello, and welcome to episode five of Gut Instinct, Research Updates, bringing you the latest research in gastroenterology and hepatology. I'm Tamsin Cargill, and I'm a clinical lecturer in gastroenterology at Oxford, interested in hepatology, viral hepatitis, and vaccine development. And I'm still Fitz, uh, Michael Fitzpatrick. I'm a clinical lecturer in gastroenterology in Oxford also. I have a research interest in GI immunology, uh, celiac disease, and in nutrition. So we started this podcast to bring you um, GI-related papers that we think are really interesting, that have come out in the last couple of months, hopefully saving you time and enabling you to get some of the interesting bits of the research without having to read all of the papers. We normally try and talk through two really interesting primary research papers in a bit of detail, one of them clinical and one of them uh, more sort of translational or more basic sciences, and then we'll give our take on the research and uh, what we think of it. Clearly there are loads of great papers coming out every month so in addition we'll give you a rapid fire or not so rapid fire rundown of what else is out there. Um, We used to call this the five and five section but we've renamed it five and fifteen although it might be longer. We're aiming to give you some clinical context and critical appraisal of the papers that we talk about. Um, um, We both love gastro and research but Fitz is more interested in IBD and nutrition while I'm more into liver disease so hopefully there's something for everyone on this podcast. Now we say this every time but there is a disclaimer this is not medical advice and uh, you definitely shouldn't believe everything that you hear on a podcast. Uh, if you're a patient please consult your medical practitioner. Um, do let us know what you think of this podcast. We're now up to the dizzy heights of episode five and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, please connect with us via Twitter at GI Update. And we're both on Twitter also, and you can email us as well, gutinstinctpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. So, Tamsin, I've got, I've got a translational IBD paper this week, and I think you've got um, something more, more clinical from a, a liver disease perspective. Yeah, so... Um... I can go first if you want. Um, So mine's a hepatology paper um, and the title is Early Liver Transplantation for Severe severe Alcohol-Related Hepatitis Not Responding to Medical Treatment, a Prospective Controlled Study. And this um, has been very recently published uh, in Lancet Gastrohep and it comes from the the French uh, Lille group. So bit of background first because I kind of needed to go go back to the literature and see and understand what the controversies are about transplantation for severe alcoholic hepatitis. So severe alcohep we all know is bad and um, 30 to 40 percent of patients with severe alcohep don't respond to steroids and these patients have a very high mortality and they don't have any other therapeutic options. So early transplantation as a rescue therapy for these patients that do not respond to medical therapy um, has been um, thought about and uh, there's been some research done over the last 10 years or so. There's been four studies published and the the initial study was um, from uh, the Lille group uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011 and that was a multi-centre study, seven centres in France and Belgium who transplanted 26 patients 
early when they had alcoholic hepatitis, but they had very stringent criteria um, to decide to transplant these patients. So it had to be their first episode of ALKEP, biopsy pr- confirmed, their Lille score at a week had to be over 0.45, i.e. you know they have not responded to steroids. And in addition, they needed a supportive family, you know, the comorbidities and some other factors that would um, that they thought clinically would uh, mean that they were less likely to relapse um, in terms of alcoholism after transplantation. And they were uh, matched to a retrospective cohort of patients with no tra- who had severe alcohol with no transplant, and they had an increased survival at two years for the transplanted patients compared to the non-transplanted patients. And these findings have been subsequently um, confirmed in further single and multi-centre cohorts in America um, uh, more recently. But all the studies so far that have been done have been retrospective, not controlled. And some of the US studies have been less stringent in the criteria that they have used um, to select patients for transplant or indeed um, to define severe alcoholic hepatitis. And these findings have basically resulted in a bit of a, what we would call in the UK, a postcode lottery um, in terms of uh, transplant practice in different countries for severe alcoholic hepatitis that's not responding to medical treatment. So in France, early liver transplantation for this indication has increased from about 35% of centres performing it in 2005 when they started performing it to about 88% by 2018. Um, In the US, um, since about 2011, um, participating transplant centres have increased from sort of 30%-ish to 50%-ish. So some centres do it. But um, it's a contraindication still in Canada. And in Germany, um, the decision has to be made by a committee. And the current UK guidelines, essentially, at the moment, they don't feel that there is enough clinical evidence to support transplantation in this group. And that's for two reasons. The first reason is that in the stopper trial, which over a thousand patients, largest ever clinical trial in ALKEP in the UK, the 90-day mortality um, in patients with a Lille score of over 0.45 was 43%. So if we used the inclusion criteria that have been used before for, for this early transplantation cohort, about half of these people would have actually had a transplant, but they would have survived without it. And secondly, at the moment, there's no really decent quality evidence um, in terms of selecting patients that would benefit from early transplants in the context of a kind of short organ supply. And and one of the main concerns is that these patients have not undergone the six monthly uh, alcohol-free um, abstinence that a patient undergoing transplant for alcoholic liver disease would have undergone under normal standard circumstances. So at the moment in the UK, it's not recommended. So just on the just on your point about um, the not drinking for six months, um, from memory, the, the French study in, in transplant for alcoholic hepatitis, the rate of sort of recidivism and restarting drinking post-transplant was actually pretty low from memory. 
sort of 10 to 20, maybe less than 10%? I think it was pretty low um, in the original studies, and it's been the same for the published American studies. In terms of the six-month abstinence in general, the UK liver transplant guidelines have actually changed recently to actually uh, encourage referrals earlier for for alcoholic liver disease with cirrhosis. So a period of abstinence of three months and then refer for assessment. But it's still, if, if the patient drinks before the transplant or during the assessment um, and, and relapses, then they, they wouldn't be um, considered for transplant at that point. And I think there's a really interesting ethical point that we don't, we don't really worry about tr- doing a superurgic liver transplant for paracetamol overdose. And yet we, in, in, in the UK and in Canada and in quite a lot of countries, we put up enormous barriers for transplant for, you know, effectively an urgent liver transplant for alcoholic hepatitis. So effectively one form of self-harm has, is being treated differently to another form of self-harm. Yeah, no, exactly right. And I think a lot of the differences between countries um, about using uh, transplanting for ALKEP early, early transplant um, reflects some of those ethical difficulties. Um, And uh, I think one of the worries is that people will be less likely to donate livers if they think that they're going to go to patients with alcoholic liver disease that are more likely to relapse. But whether that's fair, it actually, um, I don't know if it is or not, it's difficult. So um, so this study was, that the aim of the study was to compare between patients having an early liver transplant for severe alcoholic hepatitis that hasn't responded to medical therapy, between that group and um, patients who had, who subsequently underwent um, a liver transplant for alcoholic liver disease with decompensated cirrhosis who had all gone uh, undergone six months um, of abstinence and specific outcomes they wanted to compare between the two groups were firstly and this is the primary outcome the risk of uh, um, relapse um, of drinking alcohol for the two years after transplant and then secondary outcomes included two-year survival between those two groups and um, the profile of post-transplant alcohol consumption between the two groups. And then the other um, outcome they um, aimed to assess was to compare between early liver transplant for alcoholic hepatitis and uh, they matched in a case control um, study manner uh, patients who had had severe alcoholic hepatitis and had not been transplanted. And again, they were looking there at two year survival. So the advantage of this study over the previous studies was that it was prospective and they powered it as a non-inferiority trial for the primary outcome, which was um, whether there was a difference for the two years after transplant um, in uh, relapse um, into drinking alcohol or not. It was non-randomised and non-blinded and it took place in 19 centres in France, France and Belgium. And there were three groups that were prospectively recruited. 
So the first group was this early transplant group. So um, these were patients with severe ALKEP, and uh, that was usually biopsy proven, who had had steroids and failed based on their Lille score. There was 102 of those patients that were recruited. Um, they developed their own score, which hasn't been validated, um, based on the parameters from that 20, because it's the same group, 2011 um, uh, paper, where other factors that they considered um, at the outset for whether they should transplant these patients or not were things like whether they had a supportive family, um, comorbidities, all of that kind of thing, so that they could really select the right patients for transplant that are less likely to relapse. So they ha they defined a cutoff score of 220 for, to go into this early transplant group, and then these patients underwent further transplant assessment as they would have done normally. Then there was a second group that were not eligible for early transplant. There were 47 of these patients, and they also had severe alcoholic hepatitis biopsy proven and didn't respond to steroids, but they on their score that they developed, they scored under 220 and therefore it was felt to reflect that they would not um, benefit from early transplant. There was then the standard transplant group, and there was 128 of those recruited prospectively, and they all had alcoholic liver disease with cirrhosis. They were all listed for transplant, and they'd all been abstinent for six months um, before um, listing. Now, it's just worth also saying that, um, and I'll come back to this probably in the main findings, that the patients that were listed for transplant did not all have transplants. So in the early transplant group, 68 of the 102 had the transplant. And the main reasons that people didn't have a transplant were death on the waiting list, or for some of them, their liver function actually improved and they were no longer eligible for transplant. Um, in the standard treatment or standard transplant group of the 128 recruited, 93 of them had a transplant and there are various reasons for not transplanting but including death on the waiting list. The other thing to mention is the way that they assessed alcohol relapse after transplantation. And actually this is another area of contention where there's lots of different ways in which one can evaluate or define alcohol relapse in the sense that you could say one drink ever in the two years after transplantation is a relapse, but that might be different to having a high alcohol use every day, for example. So the, the tool they used was something called um, the alcohol timeline follow-back tool, and this is validated for uh, assessing alcohol relapse. Um, but we can talk about a little bit more in the findings about, um, about the alcohol relapse. So the main findings of this study, well, number one, when the early transplant group compared with the standard transplant group, the two-year abstinence in the early transplant for alcoholic hepatitis group, 34% uh, of them relapsed to drink alcohol. And in the standard group, 25% of them relapsed. And there was an absolute difference of 9.1%. The trial design had pre-specified a margin or a difference of 10% between the two groups to conclude non-inferiority 
and therefore the conclusion from this finding was that they, they cannot conclude non-inferiority of um, early transplant for alcoholic hepatitis based on relapse rates. So those numbers in terms of recidivism to alcohol, like both in the standard arm and the early transplant, are quite a lot higher than I'd thought the, the data were. So I don't know what the data in the UK is actually, something I haven't looked at. So I don't know if they're comparable to or generalizable to the UK population actually. And this is really important as well, is that the survival post-transplant, the two-year survival post-transplant was high. So in the early ALK-HEP group, it was 89%, and in the standard group, it was 88%, with a hazard ratio of 0.87. So despite the early transplant group having a higher baseline MELD because they were sicker at the time of transplant, because they had severe ALK-HEP, um, the survival post-transplant, and, and, and in fact that they, their abstinence was um, worse, Despite that, this two-year survival was pretty much the same. And the authors commented on the rates of alcohol consumption and the patterns of alcohol consumption post-transplant. They were higher than they had expected they were going to be, um, and they were higher than the estimated rates that they'd used in their power calculation to calculate the sample size. But the time to relapse between the two groups was similar, and the percentage of days abstinence was also similar. And that's what I was talking about, about the endpoints needing perhaps more thought and maybe standardised definitions. Because um, if you used time to relapse or percentage of days abstinence, there wouldn't have been a difference between the groups in terms of relapse. Whereas if you use consumption, um, which they did ask about in terms of how much alcohol they were drinking and took that into account, the rates were higher. And then the last finding is also really important because it basically does confirm um, the previous findings in the retrospective studies. And that is that early transplant for alcoholic hepatitis um, compared with matched alcoholic hepatitis, severe alcohep that were not transplanted, has a massive improvement in survival. So 71% versus 18%. Yeah, it's it's an, an enormous benefit to the individual patients. Um, and it's it's tricky because in the in, in the moral situation where you have a, a limited supply of organs, and then mm-hmm. certainly aspects of our culture where where a, a different level of judgment is placed on people whose liver disease is caused by alcohol than if it's caused by another uh, an, another cause of liver failure. That's really tricky. But actually, this is, you know, this is a highly effective therapy. And certainly from, you know, when you look after these patients on the ward who are deteriorating despite conservative management, despite steroids if appropriate, and they are just going downhill and often it's their first presentation and, you know, they are young and otherwise well. Mm. it, it, it It feels extremely difficult when we know that there is a treatment that is of benefit to them. It's really hard. Yeah, exactly. Um, so reflecting really on, on yes, what that, this might mean or how this might be interpreted, um, will the UK guidelines change as a result of this? I, I do not think they will. 
Um, I, I might be completely wrong. Um, I have no real opinion because I have never worked in a transplant centre and I'm pretty junior. But from what they said in the guidelines that they published last year, and they specifically did talk about alcoholic hepatitis in the context of transplantation for alcoholic liver disease, I think there's two issues here. Firstly, that this trial could not conclude non-inferiority in terms of um, relapse to alcohol rates between early ALKEP and standard alcoholic liver disease as indications for transplantation. And secondly, the algorithm that the authors used um, for selection of their patients has not been validated. So although they did use it at multiple centres, and they did do some comparison between two of the centres in terms of um, some clinicians scoring patients at, at both centres and and comparing the results, and they were pretty similar between between centres between those two centres. You know, it, this hasn't been um, prospectively validated, and as far as I can understand, the way the algorithm has been derived, as well, is based on. Um, clinical uh, factors really that um, we already know from other evidence puts you at increased risk of not relapsing after transplants but not from a big you know study that has uh, derived uh, different factors or derived an algorithm from regression methods or or otherwise which might be more suitable yeah so i think there's a couple of issues with the um, with that algorithm potentially. I think the point you made earlier about the interesting findings from the stopper trial are, are really relevant because unlike most other forms of chronic liver disease that we, well, for chronic liver disease that we transplant for as opposed to ALKEP, we don't, we can't really tell which fraction are going to spontaneously improve and recompensate and that's really yeah. tricky and that's quite different from other indications for urgent or, or super urgent liver transplantation like paracetamol overdose or acute wilson's or something like that where you know we we know that for those cohorts that that actually the, the survival is extremely poor without liver transplants um yeah. so yeah. that's really yeah, hard it, without it, it, yeah, and in my head, that that sort of ninety day mortality, forty three percent ninety day mortality, that doesn't marry quite with the numbers uh, in the kind of case control arm of this study, where and and indeed in in the other smaller retrospective cohorts where where you're comparing the transplant group to the non transplant group, the survival in the non-transplant group is 18%. Yeah. I, I don't remember what time frame that was, whether that's two years or, or maybe it's two years, which would make more sense. But So I think there's a there's a gap between people who are non-responders to steroids um, and people who are then referred it, it took for transplantation in places that, that, that would accept them. And I, I presume it's in, in those patients in whom there's, you know, progressive rise in bilirubin and progressive deterioration in coagulopathy, mm. despite, you know, conservative management, nutrition, control of sepsis and so on. But th yeah. that population, yeah. you know, you sometimes see the patient with the bilirubin and it's climbing and it's getting to 600 and 700. And then actually things 
start spontaneously improving and yeah. how, how you pick those ones and then don't transplant them but transplant the ones that need it it's really tricky yes yeah anyway so really interesting study yeah i i wonder i wonder if there there's a sort of some good sort of ethical papers that we can we can look at at some point because it would be you know it's a really interesting topic to explore the the yeah. ethics of transplantation in in this in this kind of setting and also, I guess, um, yeah, I'd like to talk to someone who knows what they're talking about about it. <laughs> well, I think that's the same for everything we, we which do might in terms re- of, um... refine my uh, refine my views on it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a perfect segue into the paper I'm going to do, um, which is again something that I really don't know very much about, but I'm I'm going to talk about anyway. Uh, because I've never let my my lack of knowledge stop me from having an opinion. Um, I'm <laughs> ulcerative colitis is something I'm vaguely familiar with. Um, B cells, <laughs> however, are not my favourite lymphocyte. I'm, I'm, mm, I'm a T cell man. T-cell. I'm a T cell yeah. man, um, and I don't know as much as I should about B cells and plasma cells and the humoral response overall. Um, and so it is fortunate that Nature Medicine has published a paper um, entitled Ulcerative Colitis is Characterised by a Plasma bar Blast Skewed Humoral Response Associated with Disease Activity, uh, which I think just came out uh, a couple of months ago um, in Nature Medicine. So just to start with, the colon is a barrier tissue. You know, this is this is our major contact points to the environment the, the you know the small bowel and the and the colon and the colon in particular is where we are kind of immune system our immune environment interacts with the the microbiome this huge microbial community within the colon and we at the, generate tolerance to aspects of the microbial community and we know that that microbiome is is essential to health and is and the lack of balance in that microbiome and and sort of dysregulation, dysbiosis, is linked with lots of diseases, not just diseases of the bowel, but also metabolic diseases, autoimmune diseases, neurodegenerative diseases. Um, So we know that the microbiome shapes our immune responses, both in the bowel and more systemically, but the microbiome is shaped in turn, and it's shaped by... Factors like diet, nutrient supply, um, the oxygen, uh, the availability of oxygen, um, the transit rate, the bowel transit rate, and also by the immune system itself. We've got a whole load of uh, aspects of our um, of our mucosal immune response which are geared towards controlling that microbiome. We can release antimicrobial compounds. We can modulate the nutrient content, the the barrier function, and the immune system itself can uh, modulate the microbiome also. And in particular, the humoral immune response, the antibody immune response, um, can do so because B cells can can, uh, develop into plasma cells and and gut plasma cells uh, generally secrete IgA, the, the dimer that uh, is secreted at mucosal surfaces, and that seems to have 
um, important roles in kind of sculpting the intestinal microbiota and it can help induce tolerance to particular microbial species or shape the immune response to that. Um, there was a really nice paper a few years ago with uh, who is the lead author was someone who, who I briefly worked with Kylie James who was at that point working in uh, Sarah Teichman's lab in Cambridge. She's now moved back to her native Australia and is working as a as a PI in the Garvin Institute. And in in her paper, um, she looked at the B cell and the plasma cell compartments um, and the antibodies they make, and the, and and specifically what anti an, antimicrobial kind of responses were shaping those. So what microbes they were binding to, and. She showed very nicely that even just along the length of the colon, those B cell and plasma cell responses differ. So plasma uh, cell types differ from the cecum round to the rectum and the microbes that they're responding to differ as well. So we know that this is a sort of complex and dynamic system interacting with the micro, uh, uh, microbiome. Now, let's move on to ulcerative colitis. So we know pretty much like every single disease, uh, that the microbiome is dysregulated in ulcerative colitis, but it is specifically dysregulated in ulcerative colitis. And there's also some intriguing work that if you modulate the microbiome, so there's things like um, uh, there, there are some, some trials and, uh, and reports of FMT having a potential role in modulating the microbiome and acting as a treatment for ulcerative colitis. And if you remember back to our interesting paper about uh, C. diff um, and about the micro microbiome therapy for C. diff, um, that same company, Series Therapeutics, have also got a couple of um, microbiome sort of manipulation therapies that are um, designed to target ulcerative colitis in their pipeline. So there's a lot of interest in, in that. So clearly the microbiome can potentially affect UC. So this study wanted to look in more detail at the, the humoral immune response, the antibody B cell and plasma cell immune response in ulcerative colitis compared to health. And they've used single cell RNA sequencing that we've talked about before on this podcast, as well as BCR repertoire sequencing. So this is B cell receptor repertoire sequencing where we uh, can look at the antibodies and the B cell receptors that a particular um, a particular plasma cell or B cell is is making. Um, and they've also used a number of different cytometric techniques, so flow cytometry, cytoff, and um, uh, as well as some uh, uh, microscopy. And they're trying to explore the changes in the mucosal and the circulating B cell competition in health and ulcerative colitis. So I'm not going to talk you through all uh, six main figures and numerous <laughs> supplemental figures because it is a bit of a marathon. It took, you know, this is a good couple of hours read to really, uh, really, really get, uh, get into it. So I'm, I'm not going to do that. So they started with a nice single cell experiment with, I think, eight or nine um, uh, patients either with uh, ulcerative colitis or healthy controls. Mm -hmm. And they looked at the composition 
of the immune cells in the lamina propria, and they focus very rapidly down to, to talk about the, um, the humoral immune response, the B cells, plasma cells, and plasma blasts. So the first thing is, is that you can subtype these plasma cells and plasma blasts by the kind of immunoglobulin, the kind of antibody they're making. And the, the, main, the main sort of two types in, in the gut are IgA and IgG, IgA being the dominant one in health. And in disease, what we see, and this, this study has replicated, is that you see more IgG-producing plasma cells and plasma blasts, the ones that are actively devising, dividing, and a decrease in the IgA-secreting plasma cells and plasma blasts. Um, so, so it's previously known that IgG responses are associated with um, uh, responses to interferon gamma. And it, although the mechanisms are, are unclear, certainly in humans, there is that link. And we know that interferon gamma is a sort of key inflammatory cytokine in ulcerative colitis and inflammatory bowel disease uh, in general. They then show that not only were the plasma cells and plasma blasts, the ones that are, are, are sort of producing antibodies, uh, skewed in the gut, but also the naive B cells that we also see in the lining of the gut are also dysregulated. And one subtype of those naive B cells seems to be increased in uh, ulcerative colitis. That population seems to be responding to interferons so interferon signatures both type 1 interferons so interferon alpha and interferon beta but also type 2 interferons like interferon gamma so it looks like the inflammatory milieu driven mainly by interferons is skewing the b cell and plasma cell compartments so a different a different flavor of naive b cells and then more of these igg producing plasma cells and plasma blasts and that's about half mm -hmm. of figure one where that's that's where we've got mm -hmm. to um it's quite a lot of work for half a figure <laughs> yeah then we go and effectively replicate most of this with flow cytometry so a, mm -hmm. a, a much more uh, a much more sort of traditional immunological technique, but they, it enables them to do a sort of a uh, to study a larger number of patients with with some ease. And they replicate some of these key findings about the proportions of these plasma cells and plasma blasts. They also do some microscopy and show um, nicely with some staining for plasma cell markers and also for um, KI sixty seven, a marker of uh, cell proliferation, that these proliferating plasma cells and plasma blasts are increased in ulcerative um, colitis. And can I ask a question that you may answer later, and we can cut this out if this leads down. If it's about B cells, um, we almost certainly have to edit it. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's about. Um, the plasma blasts versus the plasma cells and they might actually go on to look at this i don't know but basically the plasma blasts are the short-lived ones and the plasma cells are the things that last for a long time and one possibility that i'm just cooking up in my head um but it does it, it's 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 got biological plausibility because it does um occur in other diseases is you know is that plasma cell repertoire which is long lived do relapses of disease come from or are, are they generated by the long-lived plasma cells 
which this bit that you've explained would not answer at all. But um, I don't know if later on they, they look at anything like that, that they look at relapse. So they do look anything. at it at, at a little bit. So the plasma bars, as you say, are, are generally sort of are short lived, but they're the ones that are actively kind of proliferating at the at the time. Yes, yes. And then the plasma cells themselves, the ones that are not proliferating, come in a variety of flavours. Um, and I first learned about this actually in celiac disease, which I try not to rant about too much on this podcast, but uh, I, I sneaked in a celiac paper later. Um, but actually, it was some really nice studies in, in celiac disease in the gut where um, they described some of these really long lived plasma cells, mm. um, which downregulate a couple of the markers for CD19. And then, interestingly, mm-hmm. also CD45, they downregulate. And there okay. are these super long lived plasma cells. And in some interesting studies looking at biopsies that they've got back from like the 1990s and then comparing in the same patients they can see pretty conclusive evidence that some of these plasma cells not just the clones have lasted for like 30 years in the gut but possibly the same cells have lasted that long which is a bit amazing yeah Um, that is amazing (laughs) interestingly in ulcerative colitis it is the short-lived cd19 positive plasma cells that are the most increased so it's the short-lived plasma cells and plasma blasts that are producing igg that are most increased not the long-lived ones so something is driving a kind of a rapid aberrant igg producing sort of uh uh humoral immune response mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay that makes um, sense so uh they then looked they then looked at the BCR repertoire, so the B-cell receptor repertoire and the antibodies that these cells are making. And so you can look at the different classes of antibodies, so IgG, IgA, IgM, and then you can look at various features of the uh, the region that responds to antigen, or it binds, binds antigen directly, the CDR3 region, and you can look at the antibodies, the, the sort of the length of the CDR region, the sort of the number of um, uh, amino acids in there. You can then look at the the kind of the unique feature of the, the of the B cell as opposed to the T cell, which is this process of somatic hypermutation, where you can change this the receptor affinity within that kind of same cell line, um, and you can look at all of these. Um, all of these aspects of this kind of the the part of the antibody immune response. Um, So again, they validate the same findings. There's more IgG uh, uh, plasma cells and plasma blasts, fewer IgA uh, plasma cells and plasma blasts. Specifically, they're mainly IgG1. And their repertoire as an overall is in ulcerative colitis looks less diverse, more clonal than in health. There did seem to be a reduction in the degree of somatic hypermutation in inflamed UC, which kind of fits with the idea of these one of these cells being rapidly t- churned out um, uh, in, in, in this kind of inflammatory state. Mm-hmm. Now something that I have missed, and I need to go back and read the, the literature about this properly, is that um, they, they mentioned that there was a, there was a paper that's linked uh, a new sort of autoantigen with um with ulcerative colitis uh, an integrin so the 
alpha v beta six integrin and auto and they hypothesize that that's a potential autoantigen and it's been described that there's autoantibodies in some patients with ulcerative colitis which is really intriguing and so they tested the hypothesis that that seemed to be the case here as well and then in their cohort of of, of patients serum they noticed increased titers of anti alpha v beta 6 in ulcerative colitis patients they then tried quite hard to try and pin that down so they tried to generate a monoclonal antibody from patient plasma cells that was directed against this you know potential autoantigen and they did manage to make a single monoclonal from a single plasma cell from a single patient so they kind of proved that they kind of proved the hypothesis kind of may hold that um, the mucosal B cell response may be targeting autoantigens. But they haven't replicated that and it's just in one patient so far. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it seems to be just being in uh, a single patient. So whether whether this is a sort of an important response more widely or whether it's one of a whole load of potential autoantigens in the setting of ulcerative colitis isn't isn't kind of shown by this study. Yeah. So okay. IgG antibodies can buy, can be bound by the FC gamma receptor, which is found on myeloid cells as well as other uh, innate cells, and that can drive um, inflammatory responses. So they did a slightly slightly convoluted convoluted experiments in that they derived a gene signature from murine experiments where they've they've sort of done this in vitro so they've used IgG to stimulate myeloid cells via their FC gamma receptor they've then sequenced those myeloid cells and derived a gene signature of what a of, a, of an IgG stimulated myeloid cell is they've then yeah. generated the human orthologs of those genes so the list of genes that match the the murine ones and they've mm -hmm. taken that gene signature and looked at some bulk biopsy sequencing data and showed that in that in, in this very large cohort of patients to be fair so several hundred ulcerative colitis patients and controls that that inflammatory myeloid signature was increased mm -hmm. in suggesting that the igg that these plasma blasts and plasma cells that they found is acting and yeah. So the hypothesis is the IgG is stimulating myeloid cells to be more pro-inflammatory yeah. and that we can maybe detect this. Yeah. There is a slight issue here that you've ended up generating a kind of circular loop. So you're saying that there's more type 1 and type 2 interferon. That then skews the B cell and plasma cell repertoire to produce more IgG secreting plasma cells. There's then more IgG, and that stimulates myeloid cells to be more pro-inflammatory, which stimulates the pro-inflammatory environment that makes more IgG. Etc. Etc. So, so maybe this is a positive feedback loop, or maybe this is a sort of a circular argument, and 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 actually that there is a break in the kind of causality at some point, and these data are all human data. And in, as such, there's relatively limited kind of functional work proving mechanism 
um, which you know is always the the challenge in, in these kind of studies. Yes. So finally, by figure four or five, we move to T cells, and I relax. Um, <laughs> so they have looked at T cells, a few. Um, they confirm quite nicely some findings that we have known from other papers. There is an increase in activated non-resident effector cells, increase in cycling effector cells, and that they make lots of pro-inflammatory cytokines in ulcerative colitis. So they make all of the usual suspects, lots of TNF, interferon, gamma, IL-17, and IL-22. And these are clear drivers of the inflammatory response in the mucosa. But they also recognised that there was an interesting population of cells that look quite a lot like TFH cells. So these are T follicular helper cells. And these are cells that are normally in the germinal centres and they are providing B cell, uh, T cell help to B cells. And they uh, aid the humoral immune response um, uh, in these kind of lymphoid aggregates and, and germinal centres. Um, However, in the tissue, they do look slightly different. They don't express one of the kind of canonical TFH markers, which is called CXCR5. And recently, there's been a number of papers in rheumatoid arthritis um, in particular, as well as some other autoimmune diseases, that there are both circulating and tissue resident populations of cells that look a bit like TFHs that lack CXCR5, and they've been called TPHs or T peripheral helper cells. Um, and I'm not totally convinced that these are actually necessarily different lineages. Um, I, it may be my lack of reading of that, that literature, but I, I think they certainly are in kind of different structures and expressing slightly different things, but whether they actually represent distinct lineages or just slightly different cell states, depending on where they are and what kind of structures they're in, I think is unclear. But anyway, let's maybe call them TPHs or maybe call them TFHs. It probably doesn't matter too much. They are T cells that are um, certainly kind of primed for interacting with B cells closely. So these TPHs seem to be significantly increased in the mucosa in ulcerative colitis. So they show that really nicely. They also show that in a whole load of sort of patient samples that the proportion of these TPHs correlate to the short-lived plasma cells that they described earlier, the CD19 positive ones, and also to these naive B cells. So the two seem to correlate. There's more of this and there's more of that. Now TFHs and TPHs secrete a particular key cytokine, CXCL13, and that seems to help kind of form these kind of either germinal centers or these lymphoid aggregates. So bring the T cells and the B cells together to form these, form these structures. They show that there's high levels of CXCL13 positive cells in ulcerative colitis. And actually, I think the most interesting bit of the paper is, I mean, it's like figure panel M or O or something like that in figure five or something like that is a couple of nice microscopy images where they've shown that right at the edge of the line of inflammation in ulcerative colitis in resection specimens is where you see these cells. So it's sort of right at the edge of inflammation, you're seeing these aggregates of B cells, these TFH or TPH cells uh, producing CXCL13, this particular key cytokine. 
And actually, I think that's the most interesting bit of this whole paper is that these cells may be kind of right at the edge where the sort of inflammation is maybe most interesting and, and sort of hottest. There's still more figures. There's We're more. only at figure four, maybe five. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask more questions, but I'm not going to. Okay. I'll just, I'll bring <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, you know, this is an outrageously huge amount of work. This is, this is uh, you know, the authors are to be applauded. This is a huge it, amount it, of work. Yeah. That's why there's um, lots of authors. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of authors and there's a lot of data sets that have kind of built together to form this. They show that in, um, so they looked at both plasma blasts and plasma cells in the blood um, to cut a long short story short, they show that there seem to be an increase of gut homing plasma cells. So once they're expressing certain integrins and chemokines associated with gut homing, and in particular, our, our good old friend beta-7. So beta-7 integrin, which can pair with either alpha-E integrin to form CD103 or alpha-4 integrin to form alpha-4 beta-7. And these are targeted by drugs like vedolizumab and etrolizumab. Um, so they show that there's more of these gut homing plasma cells um, and they correlate their numbers um, of, of these cells from, from different data with disease extent in ulcerative colitis, in disease severity, in CRP and in disease complications, in predicting disease complications. So in sum, this is, I think, an amazing descriptive effort looking to understand the complexity of the humoral immune response in, um, in ulcerative colitis in the colon and in the blood, and to kind of try and tie together the T cell and B cell interaction. And I think that's really important because it's easy to become a bit reductionist with these inflammatory conditions and go like, oh, it's these cytokines, there's too much of this cytokine and that's what's driving it all. But actually, you know, these are, in, these are really complex systems and understanding uh, and describing what is changing is, you know, a really important, important element of this. Um, having said that, and this is no criticism of the paper, but I'm still not really sure what the significance of all of this is. We can see that there's these dramatic changes, but are these all just the effect of inflammation? And this is the consequence of this inflammatory milieu, that it kind of dysregulates this humoral immune response, but it's not actually a kind of a key player. Um, yeah, and I think that that's, that is you could say that for a lot of translational papers in a lot of different diseases. Um, but one thing I think this will provide evidence for is thinking about um, the B cell kind of treatment targets in the context of ulcerative colitis, because at the moment we're targeting cytokines um, that we know, you know, with monoclonals that we know um, are important in disease pathogenesis. But if the B cell compartment is um, having uh, a big effect, uh, an alternative therapy would be a B cell targeting therapy such as rituximab, which obviously isn't gut specific and yada, yada, yada. But there are several different um, biologics in development for B cell targets as well. Um, mm. So it's a good um, 
opening gambits to explore, if you will, to explore that side of things, perhaps. But certainly it can't tell you. And, and that's the thing with a lot of these, even with the T-cell stuff. Is it the chicken or the egg that yeah. comes first? It's incredibly difficult to work that out. Yeah, totally. And um, I think the thing I really want to know from this, from a kind of you know fundamental immunology point of view and from understanding ulcerative colitis point of view, is what are the antibodies produced by these B cells, these plasma cells, targeting? What is their what is their specificity? And then paired with that, these TFH TPHs, their T cell receptor, what is what is that what are their antigens? What are they responding to? Because if we're going to say that these are potentially important in disease, that these TFH TPHs are really important and that this T cell B cell interaction is important, then if I were going to pick somewhere to look for kind of important either microbial antigens or autoantigens that are important drivers in ulcerative colitis, I think those are the the, the cells to, to really interrogate. And I, I think that's that's um, a, a great point and something that, that everyone would want to do. But they did do some BCR sequencing in this paper, mm. I think, didn't they? And the trouble is, you know, unless there's a monoclonal one, you know, obvious thing that you can then dig down into, most of these things are polyclonal. And that's the real difficulty, because then where do you start to look? Or oligoclonal at any rate. Um, it's, it's difficult. Fair enough. Anyway, it was a good paper. Um, it's taught me taught me something about b cells and plasma cells and it's made me want to want to learn a bit more i may be i may be wrong in my lymphocyte specificity mm, might switch sides but i do think these things are really interesting because um we all end up in a t-cell camp and a b-cell camp and a you know and, and a macrophage camp and <laughs> but actually the reality of the immune system is they're all talking to each other and they're all yeah. interacting and when we focus on one um, it's probably at the detriment of a, of a much more holistic understanding of what really is going on um, inside. And I'm going to make a make a philosophical point from from that, <laughs> which is that uh, I think just like the immune system, good science is when those different groups talk to each other. And I think yes. the most interesting bits are where you you get like I I, I learn a great deal from people who are either interested in a, a different disease but the same kind of cell or the same disease and a different kind of cell and you start thinking about things um, in, in really different ways. This seems like a good point to move on to the uh, 5 in 5, 5 in 15, 6 in 16, whatever we're yeah. calling it nowadays. Um, do you want to start? Yeah, let's do one. Let's um, let's bring ourselves down to down to earth with a paper about some endoscopy. So okay. this is in the Annals of Internal Medicine that I rarely read. Um, but this was a comparison of a hemostatic powder uh, compared to standard treatment in the control of bleeding from non-variceal upper GI bleeding lesions. Our favourite hemospray. Yeah, exactly. 
hemospray versus conventional therapy. So in non-variceal GI bleeding, we have good evidence that if there is evidence of recent bleeding, a visible vessel or active bleeding, that we should do dual therapy. We inject some adrenaline and we either burn it or clip it because us gastroenterologists are simple folk. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense. But we've got good data that that reduces the risk of re-bleeding. And we give a PPI infusion for 72 hours. Robert's your father, brother, discharge and home. Um, hemostatic powders, such as hemospray, TM, are um, powders of a type of clay, an aluminium clay, which um, aid coagulation. I think they were developed for kind of battlefield injuries. So they have these these fancy dressings that were developed um uh i think in the in, in the iraq and afghanistan wars um to help with battlefield injuries but they've then been developed by um uh by i think cook make um hemospray into this endoscopic spray that can be used um for gi bleeding and they were kind of initially they're, they're in clinical practice and have been for some years though although there isn't much randomized controlled trial data for their use and the trials that have happened have been pretty small now their natural home has been in kind of diffuse gi bleeding so particularly for a, a bleeding upper gi malignancy let's say pre-radiotherapy where there isn't a targetable lesion and you can spray a wide area and get some hemostasis um I think in reality, their biggest role is as the treatment of last resort, where either your targeted dual therapy has not worked, has been difficult to apply because of location or something like that. And then hence the, the nickname Hemoprey as your, your last last um, chance yeah. saloon. However, it does may, remain unclear how the treatment fares in direct comparison to conventional dual therapy. And this is the question this trial sought to ask. So this was a non-inferiority randomized controlled trial of conventional dual therapy versus hemospray. And it was performed in Hong Kong, Thailand and Singapore in three centers. And it was pretty large for endoscopy you know, trials, 200, 224 patients randomized to the two arms. And the primary outcome was control of bleeding in 30 days. So I control of bleeding and no evidence of re-bleeding in that period. Um, and the upshot of it was that it met its primary endpoint of non-inferiority. So hemostasis, the, uh, the primary endpoint was achieved in 90% of the patients in the hemospray arm compared to 81% in the standard treatment group. So there was no significant difference between that. God, I'm surprised by that. <laughs> which shows how biased I am about hemospray because of the way we use it because yeah. we use it in the like yeah, last totally. resort and it's considered a, <laughs> it's... a sort of inferior thing for sort of less advanced endoscopists um, and there was no difference in recurrent bleeding in the requirement for further endoscopy the need for angiography the need for surgery or indeed death so I think this is a really useful study because I think it defends the right to use hemospray if conventional therapy is um, is is not approachable or, or, or not, yeah, not yeah. easy to use. Does it mean that we should use it interchangeably and we should reach for the hemospray first? Well, quite apart from the uh, eye-watering cost of hemospray compared to uh, a little bit of heater probe or a couple of clips, I think there are other reasons for hemo, uh, for standard therapy over hemospray. Um, 
from my own experience once it's very hard actually once you've once you've given a good 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 wang of hemospray you can't see anything you don't know if you've got hemostasis generally you've just got a sort of gray screen yeah. swirling mist and then you you know you pull out and cross your fingers and toes um so that's not very helpful and although i've only ever done this once or twice if you rescope someone early after hemospray it's just this sort of scorched earth of kind of gray black clay so it's it's then quite tricky to apply any kind of follow-up therapy um but i think it does provide reassurance that it's if you can't do conventional therapy it's a perfectly approach uh, appropriate choice and there's certainly you know, locations in the stomach and duodenum that are really hard to apply conventional therapy. Some types of ulcers, particularly wide, you know, wide ulcers with a really kind of, you know, firm sort of fibrinous base that are just really hard to provide dual therapy. And actually we should, you know, maybe just say this is a better one for hemospray. So I thought a nice, practical, reassuring paper and I think I've only rambled on for about three that's minutes. Great. So that's, that's quite good. That's a good one. Um, so I'm going to do one about statins, um, hopefully equally helpful and practical mm-hmm. perhaps, um, in liver disease. So the title of this paper, which was published in the Journal of Hepatology uh, last month, this month even, statin exposure is associated with reduced development of acute and chronic liver failure in a veterans affairs cohort. So... Um, Previously, there's some evidence that statins as a drug class, um, and this is all sort of observational studies, but they're associated with a reduced risk of um, uh, acute decompensation, HCC, and risk of death in uh, cirrhosis. And there might be some biological reasons for this. So obviously, they are lipid lowering and do all the cholesterol stuff that you know we give them to patients for but they also have some anti-inflammatory properties some antioxidant properties and they're vasoprotective and there was a um, randomized trial in um, back in 2016 in gastroenterology which uh, was was looking at actually um, the prevention of variceal re-bleeding and they added simvastatin to standard therapy for this. And it didn't do anything to the re-bleeding risk, but it did increase survival in the patients that received it. So there's some you know, prior evidence that uh, statins might um, be useful in patients with cirrhosis, but it's never really um, been looked for to see whether there's an associating with, between statin use and acute and chronic liver failure. And why this is of interest, um, just to remind everyone, Uh, Acute and chronic liver failure, various definitions, but the European definition, patient has acute decompensation of their cirrhosis, um, but they also have associated organ failures and um, it has a high short term mortality. So this is a key group where we would love to have um, some therapeutic approaches to try and either prevent them getting or developing a CLF or treating it once they've got it to try and reduce the mortality. So this uh, study was retrospective cohort, big, um, of the US Veterans Health Administration um, and uh, over 84,000 patients were included um, who had uh, cirrhosis. About half of them had never had statin exposure. Um, About 30% of them were on a statin at baseline and the rest um, started a statin during the follow-up period. Um, and 
the um, authors did a really good job of um, they used two different statistical methods to look at the association between statin use and ACLF development. So they used a Cox proportional hazards regression model and they adjusted for confounders in two ways. So the first method, they used something called inverse probability treatment weighting, which I had to look up. And it's basically logistic regression model and it estimates the probability of confounding exposures um, observed for a particular person and then they get a weighting and um, they create a sort of pseudo population, which is balanced in confounders across covariates of interest. In, in other words, trying to, to simulate a, a randomised controlled trial population. And then the second method they then used um, as a sensitivity analysis essentially in this study um, uh, to confirm the findings from, from that inverse probability treatment weighting um, was marginal structural, structural models which controls for time varying confounders which is important in this study because um, they're looking over a, a period of time and um, things, various different things can happen during that time period, including starting or stopping statins, increasing the dose, etc. So the primary outcome that they looked at was the first occurrence of high-grade ACLF uh, in, in people that had been exposed to statins or hadn't been exposed to statins. So the top findings were that people with um, high-grade ACLF any statin exposure meant that they were significantly more likely uh, not to develop ACLF uh, than people who had never been exposed to statins. Um, and I should say of the 80,000 odd patients with cirrhosis in the first place, about 10% of them developed ACLF. Um, and the, the ACLF, um, the trigger, so the decompensating event for the ACLF was actually different um, in people on statins versus not on statins. So if you're on statins, it was more likely that an infection um, had led to uh, the you know, decompensation. But if you were not on statins, you're more likely to have ascites or hepatic encephalopathy as your decompensation method. And also the organ failures were different. So um, if you were on statins and you had ACLF, you're more likely to have kidney or circulatory failure. Whereas if you weren't on statins, um, you're more likely to have liver failure or brain failure, so encephalopathy. And the other interesting thing was um, the mortality from ACLF, the short-term 28 and 90-day mortality was significantly lower in patients on statins or had, that had any statin, statin exposure compared to those that didn't. Um, and they did various other analyses to understand this relationship and to see whether it might be causal or not. So the time associated statin use was calculated. Um, and um, so, uh, and, and was um, anyone on different statins, it was all kind of um, switched to uh, the equivalent dose of simvastatin and, and was reported in milligrams of that simvastatin uh, per um, month, for example, how many months they'd been on it um, overall. So the time associated statin use was reduced, was associated with a reduced hazard of developing ACLF and it was dose dependent. So with increasing statin doses and ex increasing exposure time to statins, 
the hazard ratio of developing ACLF progressively decreased. And the two different ways that they modelled this, um, the, find, the main findings were pretty consistent between the two different methods, um, which uh, sort of validates their findings. So what does this mean? Should we be prescribing statins for everybody with cirrhosis? I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> so um, there is evidence from this study that there is a causal association, i.e. in the sense that statins appear to be protective in, in um, both ACLF, reducing ACLF development and mortality from ACLF. Um, the two statistical models agreed. The effect was specific, so um, patients with that were on the satin had this effect in this in this uh, data set. Whereas there were some patients, about a lower number, who were on non-statin lipid-lowering drugs, and um, this, these effects were not seen with those. So it's not implying it's not related to the lipid-lowering um, effects of the statin. It's something else. There was a dose response, and there's a biologically plausible mechanism of action. So, um, firstly, the differences in mode of um, acute decompensation and the organ failures. Um, in a rat model of cirrhosis and ACLF, um, giving these rats simvastatin reduced hepatic inflammation and reduced portal pressures and improved survival. So there's a potential um, mechanism there that suggests um, perhaps why patients on statins were more likely to develop decompensation from infection rather than portal hypertensive causes. Um, but really, you know, we need prospective studies, especially randomised trials, to validate um, these findings. Um, and we also really need to think about the adverse, the potential adverse events of starting statins. So um, in a randomised trial, uh, from a few years ago, uh, looking um, at uh, giving two different different doses of simvastatin with rifaximin in de decompensated cirrhosis, um, they found that there was an increased risk of rhabdomyolysis um, and increased creatine kinase and um, liver transaminases in patients on forty given forty milligrams of simvastatin compared to twenty. Twenty appeared safe, so. Is it that we need to start a particular dose of, of statin rather than, although this study is saying the higher doses, the longer the exposure, the um, better the protection. So I think, should we prescribe statins? Maybe. And if we are, probably 20 milligrams for this indication alone. But I think maybe the jury's out and we need a bit more evidence. I don't know. What do you think? I am very sceptical of any methodology that tries to in some way replicate an RCT from retrospective data. Um, that is no criticism of the authors. I think it's a perfectly appropriate um, tool to explore potential, you know, therapies in this, in, in, you know, in this context. And, you know, you're right, the two statistical methods tied up this seems to be a statin-specific effect. There's a dose response. There's some biological plausibility. It all falls kind of together. But then again, we've seen that before with other therapies. You just have to look at why etanercept doesn't seem to work in IBD, but infliximab mm -hmm. does, and yeah. why 
tranexamic acid yeah. seemed <laughs> to be ineffective in upper GI bleeds when in much smaller trials that it seemed to be effective and there's a very plausible mechanism of action. Yeah, and absolutely. So, so probably some prospective randomised data would be would be better. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And it's it's um uh I, I think I think it certainly backs up the case that if you've got an indication for a statin for these patients who are often at high risk of vascular events and, and so on, that you, you shouldn't hold back. There's no signal that there's harm. But I think if we're gonna start, you know, giving it out to people who have no indication to be on a statin, then I th- I think we probably need some prospective randomized trial data yeah and especially looking at the adverse events as well in the context of liver cirrhosis because clearly they are a different population um to the general public really interesting really interesting so i did mention briefly celiac disease this is going to be a quick one this is in gut amazingly um Mm. uh we love a bit of celiac disease in gut this is an epidemiological study from sweden um, uh, it is entitled Two Waves of Celiac Disease Incidents in Sweden, a nationwide population-based cohort study from 1990 to 2015. So, celiac disease, we've got an autoimmune condition where the body is having an aberrant immune response to gluten. And initially we thought this was mainly in kids. So all the initial descriptions were of kids with really severe steatorrhea and malnutrition. But in, in the sort of 90s in particular, increasing awareness of the possibility of adult disease and the fact that we developed serological tests for anti-TCG and anti-EMA antibodies meant that we started diagnosing a whole load more adults. And we now know that there are loads of adults with pretty mild GI symptoms, but often with extra-intestinal symptoms, so fatigue, really bad vitamin deficiencies, osteoporosis, even neurological conditions. Uh, that are, are their presenting symptoms of celiac disease. Now, there have been a whole load of epidemiological studies over that have covered you know the last seventy years or so, and many of them, indeed the vast majority of them, have indicated some form of increase in either the incidence or prevalence of celiac disease over various timescales, but. Almost all of them are really compromised by selection or awareness bias, i.e., um, yeah, you, yeah, you, you know, if you don't have a test, it's quite hard to diagnose a condition. So once you've got the test, you can diagnose it. So the advent of endoscopy, the advent of um, serological tests, the awareness that adults get it. So it's hard to tease apart. Now, there are some studies that kind of control for that. Um, My favourite is a really nice um, study which looked at serological samples from military personnel from the 1940s and then compared it to uh, serum from military personnel in the 1980s. And they showed like a three and a half fold increase in the incidence of celiac disease autoimmunity or autoantibodies for celiac disease. So there does look like there was some increase at some point in the second half of the 20th century. But is it still going up or not? Um, the Nordic countries do a great do a, do a great line in national databases. Um, they really they do some absolute crackers and they do Denmark, 
I'm always very jealous. Of For many reasons. There's great studies. restaurants. It's a, it's a lovely country. <laughs> yeah. Um, Lego. Um, yeah, it's all there. Yeah. Um, but in terms of Sweden, they've got an amazing national database for histology, which I shouldn't be this excited about, but I am. Um, so basically everything is centralised. Every histology result in Sweden is put into the same database, which is pretty cool. And this has been going for a while. And this means that the researchers based in Sweden and, and in North America use this database to look at the changes in incidence over a 25 year period, 1990 to 2015, for celiac disease um, diagnoses on duodenal biopsies. The thing they did that was really cool is they also looked at the incidence of normal duodenal biopsies. And they can use that as a proxy measure for that kind of number of yeah, that, that, you know whether we're looking for it so it's it's actually kind of a cool kind of idea yeah it's um, good so you yeah. know the scale of this is massive so they have forty-five thousand patients who had villus atrophy on duodenal biopsies and over four hundred thousand patients with normal duodenal biopsies so you know huge numbers wow lots of people yeah um and so they compared the kind of celiac cohort and the non-celiac cohort. So the, the celiac biopsies are, you know, very representative of what we normally expect. There's a female preponderance. These uh, patients have a median age of 28. They're relatively young. Um, but what's really cool is that they've done these nice curves of the incidence over time. And what's really interesting is there seems to be two peaks. So there seems to be a kind of mid-90s peak and then an early 2000s peak. And then over after that period, the incident seems to either be stable or very slightly declining, but it seems to have kind of levelled off, certainly. Um, and that's despite um, increasing rates of duodenal biopsies. So we're doing more endoscopies, and we're doing more biopsies, but actually we seem not to be diagnosing more people. We seem to have kind of levelled out. So that's the first thing, is that it looks like, as best as we can tell, is that whatever kind of celiac epidemic that there was in Sweden sort of 20 odd years ago has now leveled out. So that's interesting. And there are a number of potential um, epidemiological drivers that you could look at about, you know, smoking rates, rotavirus vaccination, breastfeeding patterns, all sorts of things that might be related to that. I think the second take home message is actually in this cohort, celiac disease is extraordinarily common in adults. So it, um, the data suggests in, in this paper that, you know, one in one in 70 men and one in 40 women are diagnosed with celiac disease. That means uh, an overall incidence of near, best part of nearly 2%, which is much higher than previous estimates of 0.5 to 1%. This is a big problem, at least in Sweden. Um, and adult diagnoses are really common. Um, and so I think that's... Um, that's the the kind of interesting take home message that this is this is common. Question on that: yeah. um, Some autoimmune diseases, I'm thinking MS, I'm thinking also some liver ones, maybe from memory, like PBC and things. They've got an increased incidence or or, or prevalence or both. Uh, the more north you go, do you think that that this might be reflective? this is there any evidence of that in celiac disease yeah it seems to be there seems to be some link increased risks in nordic countries um increased risk in ireland historically i think uh, 
it's really it's very difficult to tie apart uh, sort of tease apart what is related to latitude what is related to um kind of industrialized westernized society yeah diet yeah degree of antigen so many exposure compounders. microbial exposures um and um and potentially the effect on different kind of you know g- genetic makeups of the population it's quite hard to tease those bits apart i think there's pretty convincing evidence that there's some form of pre-industrial and post-industrial sort of you know uh effect but whether but what what the driver of that is is very hard because there's clearly so many things that co-correlate there yeah shall i do my last one and then you finish with a bang or what do you want yeah yeah go for it yeah so this is something slightly different this is basically a survey of gastroenterology trainees in the in the u.s and this was um a paper in neurogastroenterology and motility which i don't think i read enough of um because i had a look at the rest of the edition it was pretty interesting and this paper was brought to my attention by john seagull he's a friend of mine we were shos together a very long time ago and he's now working as a um a, a consultant in melbourne uh, he's got uh, a lot of expertise in ibd and pouches that's what he did his research in and in the gut microbiome but he was tweeting about this paper a few days ago Um, And this is a survey of gastroenterology trainees' attitudes and knowledge towards patients with disorders of gut-brain interaction. Disorders of gut-brain interaction, which is surprisingly hard to say rapidly, um, is is the the label that the Rome 4 criteria um, have given to what were previously labelled as functional disorders. And I like the name change. I think it's helpful i think it's descriptive um and i think it helps in communication with patients about what we think is going on it's a it's a good name change um these are really common about 40 percent of the population are affected the most common being uh irritable bowel syndrome and functional dyspepsia that we see loads of in our general gastro clinics and this was a set this was a questionnaire distributed by GI fellowship directors in the United States to GI trainees and it wasn't a huge survey they got 133 responses from GI trainees across the uh, the USA um, and they asked a few questions about their experiences of managing these patients how much I guess how much satisfaction they got from doing that and what their concerns were about that and about their knowledge about that area and I think the the results are not desperately surprising but pretty stark so 25 percent said that their attendings their mentors their trainers were role modeled dismissive attitudes to these patients often i am surprised that's not high um so it actually it was much a higher number who sometimes did that it was like 70 percent 25 percent said often their trainers were were um, displaying dismissive attitudes and that doesn't surprise me in the slightest um nearly a quarter of trainees felt frustrated or burnt out when seeing patients with disorders of gut brain interaction um and that increased as they went through their training um and nearly 30 percent of trainees didn't want to see these patients in their outpatient practice in the future ever 
which is clearly totally unrealistic if you have any kind of general gastroenterology practice. But, you know, that's a stark number who just don't want to see this huge cohort of patients in their outpatient practice. Um, and senior trainees, despite, despite being sort of at the end of their fellowship, often reported being uncomfortable with doing things like titrating neuromodulator agents uh, or being or, or understanding when best to refer to it to a gastropsychologist. Um, so there were issues in terms of their kind of knowledge and comfort base. Um, uh, mm -hmm. And which maybe reflects the the, uh, the, the previous two yeah. points, you know, that their supervisors are dismissive um, and that they don't enjoy seeing these patients. Um, the kind of consultation difficulties that arise. Yeah. So um, I think sometimes we need studies and papers to tell us the blindingly obvious. Um, again, no criticism of the author authors. I think these results are entirely unsurprising, but actually really shocking to read. Um, and actually, it's really important that studies like this are done because you know when it's written down and published it's actually then very hard to argue with and i think that's really really important my only slight caveat was this was that and was this raised in the twitter discussion is that this is all really framed as kind of you know potentially the aberrant attitude of trainees whereas actually i think this is a cultural issue within gastroenterology no, I, I actually is, don't i don't think yeah, this has yeah, yeah. anything really to do with trainees trainees are are learning no. the the norms of their specialty and of their community and they are picking them up these are not due to the trainees it's due to the culture within gastroenterology yeah. i completely agree and also the services that or the lack of services that are available to support these kind of patients yeah. because often you have very limited options and that's really yes yeah, so I, I guess my reflections are, are that this correlates with the negative attitudes there are about functional diseases in every specialty and disorders of gut-brain interaction is no different and we've mentioned this before with a couple of papers in other podcasts. Um, I think it's an area that's often really unattractive to gain specialist knowledge in and it's often hard to do because lots of centres will not have anyone that has a specialist interest in this area. Um, there are a few research opportunities there's very little funding for that. So people don't think it's their thing. They don't think that that's really a kind of good career option. Um, and I think a lot of it actually comes from us that I, I don't know about you, but actually managing uncertainty, managing these kind of cases is actually much harder than dealing with, you know, really severe ACLF or acute severe colitis, actually, because it's really uncomfortable and frustrating as doctors to be involved in managing something that you don't understand, that you're really uncertain about. The evidence base is difficult. Yeah. You know, it's really hard. It might work. It might not. I, I've just, I've got a kind of patter about. We know that we, you know, we know that there's an interaction between the brain and the gut, but we don't know all the all the ins and outs, and therefore, you know, we've done lots of trials, but some of these therapies work with some individuals and some of these therapies don't and then we just have to do trial and error yeah. you know every patient and that's really hard and often loads of them have tried everything and frankly. it's hard to say to people i you know, don't when you know you actually go back 
yeah, it's it much is. easier to and say. All that we don't know. I do know. Here's a, a lovely guideline. We know. You know. Here are the. Here's the trial <laughs> yes. evidence for. You know. You know all of these yeah. exciting maps that I've got in my in my pocket, um, and it's much harder to say I don't know. And you're on a kind of an, a journey of exploration with the patient. That's actually much harder, and that's made even harder because, actually, we don't really have an MDT. Certainly, you know, I've not had in my practice. It's often very hard to get access to dietitians for this work because there's very limited funding i have never worked in a place that has proper interaction with a psychologist in the service um, to the extent that we need and you know these these patients really need and deserve you know high quality uh communication and that takes time but we don't have time and i also think a a lot of it there's this push to discharge these kind of people, but actually they 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 really need more follow up because of this communication aspect and the trial and error aspect. Whereas we just sort of discharge back to the GP to do all of that, which is unrealistic. And and there's some you know there's some great resources from the Rome Foundation about managing these patients, but there and there are some fantastic videos about communicating with patients, which are really really helpful, and I really advise you to watch them. But again from a u.s centric point of view they sort of talk about oh you know i'll follow you up in six week time and i'll see you every couple of weeks and do let me know how you get on and actually (laughs) (laughs) that that's actually not something that i can do in my service i can put a follow-up and there'll be an appointment in a year but actually i will be really rather encouraged to, to discharge you back to your primary care physician because we are so pressured in clinic. So we don't have the time in a clinic slot, but we don't also have the capacity to follow these patients up. So I totally get why gastro doctors are um, dismissive about these patients. I don't agree with it, but I totally understand it. And I totally agree with the idea about burnout because when you invest sufficient time to manage these patients as well, actually you're overrunning an hour in clinic and you don't have the time for it um that's really really hard i don't know what the solutions are um but i thought this was a really interesting and important discussion to have about um uh, this area yeah no i I absolutely agree and yeah massive cultural change but also uh, uh, linked with different uh, different service provision i think because the services and the time and, and things, the, the constraints we're working under in the NHS do not allow us to no. properly manage these patients, I don't think. And finally, what have you got, Tamsin? Right, last one is about Wilson's disease. Um, yeah, I thought, we don't really talk about Wilson's disease, and I know it's really rare, but it's you know, a difficult problem for people that, that have it, and it's a difficult problem to diagnose. So um, the title is The Pathophysiology of Wilson's Disease Visualised, a Human C- 64 Copper Pet Study, and it was published uh, literally, you know, this month in Hepatology. So the aim of the study was to evaluate um, PET-CT to assess in vivo copper handling using um, a copper 64 radioisotope and they wanted specifically to quantify the hepatic copper handling characteristics for Wilson's disease patients compared to healthy people. And why do we want to do that? Well, Wilson's disease, um, rare, 
autosomal recessive mutations um, on the ATPase copper transporting beta gene, so ATP7B. Um, but I believe there's no one uh, mutation, um, and and um, this leads to impaired function of the copper transporting protein, and this is essential for copper excretion from the liver. So in health, the majority of copper excretion from the liver is into the bile and um, out through the colon. Um, but in Wilson's disease, this is impaired, and um, then copper builds up uh, in the liver. The issue really is that no single test can make the diagnosis with accuracy, including genetic tests. So sometimes it's very difficult to diagnose. Um, so the other thing is I was going to just um, point to some uh, uh, British Association of the Study of the Liver um, have recently published some guidelines on the investigation and management of Wilson's disease um, in the Lancet GastroHep last month, um, which are probably worth a read to help um, understand what we should be doing um, based on the current evidence. So um, this paper was looking at basically can we use uh, PET-CT to um, more accurately diagnose Wilson's disease. So the methods, um, they had three groups. Uh, they had Wilson's disease with hepatic phenotype, nine of them, um, and they compared those to um, heterozygote healthy first degree relatives of Wilson's disease cases, five of them, and they compared them to healthy controls, eight of them. They were given an intravenous bolus of um, uh, copper 64, and then they had a 90 minute continuous immediate PET-CT of the liver, and that continue, continually acquired data. And then they had a further whole body PET-CT um, at 1.5 hours, 6 hours and 20 hours after the IV administration. So the main findings were um, the time course of the blood radioactivity wasn't different between those three groups. So i.e. after the IV bolus, they all had um, similar um, CU64 in their blood. Um, but the um, hepatic uptake of the CD of the copper 64 from the blood into the liver was um, pretty immediate in all groups after administration, but a bit slower in, Wil in Wilson's disease, and the significance of that isn't certain. Um, at an hour and a half or 90 minutes afterwards, after the administration, there was no uh, copper uh, 64 in the gallbladders of Wilson's disease or heterozygous participants, but it was visible in the majority of the healthy controls, and there was no copper 64 in the colon of Wilson's disease patients either. So that's sort of confirming um, the presumed pathophysiology that there's reduced hepatic excretion of copper. Interesting in that Wilson's the disease. heterozygotes also showed some difference at that point because, you know, it's a recessive. It is interesting. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, I think at later time points they did show. Um, but yes, no, that's a good point And um, the authors do pick that up. Um, so the mean um, peak hepatic concentration of the copper, the radioactive copper, was at six hours in heterozygotes and in healthy controls. But in Wilson's disease patients, it continued to increase until 20 hours, which was the last scan of the study. And that the Wilson's disease patients had a significantly increased hepatic concentration of copper 64 at 20 hours compared to both of the other groups. But there was quite a lot of overlap between the groups. Um, meaning that 
if they wanted to use it for diagnosis, um, they it would need to be a bit tighter so that the groups didn't overlap, especially between the heterozygotes and uh, the patients with Wilson's disease. So um, they then calculated a ratio of the average or the mean um, hepatic copper um, between the 20 hours and the 1.5 hours, and that improved the discrimination between the groups to accurately identify the Wilson's disease patients alone. Now, this is a small study really looking to see whether this kind of thing is feasible and um, just also to understand what the um, copper transport in the liver is like in real time in, in these uh, different groups. But absolutely further studies would be needed um, to evaluate the diagnostic accuracy compared to the other methods of diagnosis of Wilson's disease and in larger cohorts. And the other thing was these uh, the Wilson's disease patients in this study, ha you know, they weren't treatment naive, so they stopped their chelator or zinc three days before the scans, but actually their long-term zinc chelator therapy might affect um, uh, the copper metabolism and excretion in these patients for longer, and actually treatment naive patients is um, where the money is in terms of diagnosis. And in terms of the thing you picked up about uh, the heterozygous participants compared to the Wilson's disease participants. So there was um, uh, some in, it, uh, there was some indication that the copper handling in the heterozygous patients was not completely normal, but they do not have the disease phenotype. And so that's an important observation, I guess, in terms of developing therapies for Wilson's disease where you don't necessarily need complete normalization of copper handling or hepatic copper excretion. It might be um, still adequate to get it a bit better um, and they might not get the clinical mm. phenotype. That's an interesting point. So do you see this as something for patients with um, unclear genetics or no other def you know definitive features on you know liver biopsy or something like that that this could be uh, something that could help with diagnosis with those those more tricky cases so initially that would be where this would play a role it needs a lot of development before we could even start you know saying that it would be useful in that role but ultimately i mean in the best case scenario um, you know, comparing it to gold standard, which would be a liver biopsy, I guess. Um, you know, if this was better at or or non inferior to liver biopsy at diagnosis, um, that might prevent uh, invasive liver biopsies, and you could just do some imaging instead. So, um, it it might not be as good as that, <laughs> but it's um interesting. Yeah, it's super to, interesting, and it's really interesting about. to. I guess visualize the physiology of this um, in the in this kind of way kind of makes me mm. interested if you know you could set up some kind of you know organoid model or something of those of those cells and you know model model kind of uh, copper transport um, uh, particularly particularly in the heterozygotes because I, I I'd never I guess I'd always rather assumed that because it was recessive that they would have entirely normal copper handling but I guess that I mean that was a complete assumption but um uh yeah that's really interesting from a 
yeah genetic and physiological point of view yeah yeah great so um that rounds off our five in five in 45 45. and another blockbuster (laughs) edition we're really going to have to work on our brevity but it's because we're just so interesting um yeah (laughs) we love the sounds of our own voices so much yeah thanks for listening and bearing with us right till the end um if you have done so and um we will see you next time for another episode possibly shorter possibly not of gut instinct (laughs) 